one second. I need to enter my password. So, uh, as Leon said, my name is Jason, and uh, just want to say how awesome this church has been. Uh, like he said, my wife Katie and I moved back from New York almost three years ago, and yeah, being a part of Redeemer has been extremely healing and healthy for us, and it's been a really, really awesome church to be a part of. So I'm excited to be sharing with you all. I'm extremely nervous. I thought all those announcements that I had made about like game nights and uh, sporty Sundays were going to calm these nerves, but now that I'm up here and I see that all of you are staring at me, <laughs> these nerves are coming in uh, in full force. But uh, And I also just want to say thank you to uh, Drew and Leon for asking me to do this and for trusting me with this. I don't take it lightly. And um, Leon was gracious to meet with me a number of times and give me feedback and work with me. So I appreciate Leon and Drew uh, for doing that. So we are going to be looking at the book of Romans. And I will read our passage. It comes from chapter 7 verse 21 to chapter 8, verse 6. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me. Uh, You may notice that I have this very shiny, very colorful Bible. This is my first Bible. My mom found it somewhere in a dusty basement. It's from 96. Zella Colts, I don't know if she's in here, but she described me as dark colors, Jason. And so I'm trying to kind of step out of my mold and, uh, you know, bring a little light and, uh, and color to this thing. So I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm going to pray because I need prayer. And then we are going to dive in, and I'm excited to share what I feel like God's been teaching me. So Romans chapter 7, yep, it's up there. Thank you. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being... I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And I lost my place. A sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your scripture and the authority that it holds over us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. 
And I ask that your, your spirit would lead us into a better understanding of you today, God. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin and of inconsistencies in our lives, that we might be uh, reflecting more of Christ as we grow and mature. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I believe Paul is getting at in this, what I believe Paul is getting at in this, before I was so rudely interrupted by this microphone, is this, that no matter how inconsistent we may be, God is always consistent. That is the big takeaway for me when I read this passage. No matter how inconsistent I may be, God is always consistent. And that's really good news because that means that our salvation and our standing with God isn't based on our performance or based on what we do or don't do, right? So let's define consistency. I looked it up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, and they define it as agreement or harmony of parts or features to one another or a whole. Specifically, ability to be asserted together without contradiction, Without contradiction. So when I was a high schooler, teenager, I was pretty emo. I don't know if any of you know what being emo is. I had long hair. I had black fingernail polish. I wore a lot of dark colors, as Zella has pointed out. So I was really drawn to this philosopher. His name's Kierkegaard. Anybody heard of Kierkegaard? All right, we got some Kierkegaard fans, some other fellow emos. And uh, he has this idea that immediately jumped out at me when I was reading this passage. And he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. So purity of heart is to will one thing. He has an entire book titled Purity of Heart. And it goes into this idea. You could also think of it as purity of heart is to want one thing. And what this means, I think, is that we experience purity of heart when we desire one thing above everything else. When we're not divided in the things that we want, in the things that we're pursuing, in the things that we're prioritizing. A pure heart has a singular aim. Going back to our definition of consistency that I just read, a pure heart is without contradiction. And if I'm honest, and I don't think I'm alone in the room, most of my trouble, most of my sorrows in life come from me having this problem, where I'm, I desire opposing things. I desire things that are not congruent with each other. They're not consistent. I want God, but then there's parts of me, if I'm honest, that want the world. I want God's approval above everything, but then when I get in a room full of people staring at me and I'm on stage with a microphone, I want man's approval. And I want to be more disciplined in life, whether that's exercising, waking up early, reading more, watching less Netflix. The list goes on, right? But I don't always, even though I know the good thing for me, I don't always choose it. And some of these examples that I just listed, it's not, they're not necessarily sin per se, but there's this idea in 1 Corinthians 6 that Paul talks about where he says, all things are permissible to me, but not all things are profitable. And I think this idea applies to us as Christians especially because though there may not be things that are sinful, They are things that pull us away from God. They are things that divide our hearts and cause us to be inconsistent in our thoughts and in our actions. And they can take us down a path that leads to sin if we're not careful. And a key component to maturity 
is recognizing what is and what is not profitable for me. And then choosing what is profitable over what is just permissible and doing it consistently, right, again and again. With single-mindedness, with purity of heart, like Kierkegaard is talking about. But here's the problem, right? We seem incapable of doing this on our own. There's good news, and I'll get to it in a second, but first we've got we to gotta talk about the bad news a little bit. So the Bible, as far as I can tell from reading and looking up smarter people than myself, doesn't explicitly talk about addiction. It talks about temptation. It talks about the struggle with sin. It talks about you know, the flesh versus the spirit, the old man versus the new man. But it doesn't explicitly talk about or describe addiction the way that we think about it maybe in modern America, right, when we think about substance abuse and we think about lust and things like that. But from reading this passage, the first thing that jumps out at me is that Paul seems to be describing addiction. He seems to be describing the the experience that most people who are either recovering addicts or who are struggling with addiction deal with. This inability to do the thing you know you should do and this constant kind of going back to what you know is not the best thing for you. And some of us in this room maybe have dealt with addictions. Some of us are in the process of dealing with addictions. Maybe some of us come from families with a a history of addiction. I know that I do. And so for you, this might be immediately resonating. This might just be exactly where you're at and you're, you're relating to what Paul's describing. And then there may be other people here who don't have much experience with addiction. So you may be inclined to tune me out at this point and, and decide that Jason's not really talking about anything applicable to me. I'm good. I don't do drugs every Sunday, so I'm fine. But what I want to touch on is that we tend to categorize and rate sins, and we tend to hone in on the quote-unquote obvious sins the substance abuse, the, you know, lust and things like that. But we we tend to not really focus or think about this passage in light of sins like gossip and judging one another and uh, anger and slander and jealousy and these other things. And so I just want to encourage us, and I don't say this to, to condemn anybody or to make anybody in the room feel shame, but I say this to encourage you to Really think about this passage in light of our sin and ask yourself what God might be wanting to highlight for you. What is it in your life that he may be wanting to break you out of the cycle that you find yourself in? Because he does want to deliver us and he does want consistency and victory. That doesn't mean that we're all going to be perfect starting tomorrow, but it does mean that we should be moving towards greater consistency, greater maturity, greater sanctification, right? That's the process that we're in. So Paul wants to remind the church and encourage them of this. Later on in in, um, Romans 13, he talks about casting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. We see this idea throughout Scripture of putting on Christ, putting off the old, putting on the new. Peter in 1 Peter 2.21 calls us to be imitators of Christ. So if, if we see this throughout Scripture, then it it, needs, it should be conveying to us that these aren't just slogans or just kind of empty 
encouragement or advice. These are, these are commands. These are things that we are called to be doing as, as believers. But like I stated, we, we don't seem to be able to do this. We need help. In the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis, my buddy Rob lent it to me. I read it. It was good. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus. He says, Christ's isolation is not that of a prodigy, but of a pioneer. He is the first of his kind who will not be the last. And what that means is that Jesus didn't just come to do what he did, leave, and then leave us to just kind of the condition that we've found ourselves in. He came to show us a way. He came to, to demonstrate to us the way that God wants us to live. And he sent his Holy Spirit, which I'll get to in a second. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But it's important that when we look at our struggle with sin, our inconsistency in thought and action, that we see it through the lens of the gospel and not through the lens of our own experience. Just because my experience may tell me that I sin and therefore that's all there is to life, that's all there is to this human condition, I can't let that become an excuse or a crutch for not pursuing the process of sanctification that I was just talking about. And the fullness of Christ that is available now to to myself, to each of you. So we need to address we need to address our sin through the lens of the gospel and what Scripture says. So it's less about comparing myself to Jesus when I read this passage that Paul is talking about, and it's more about learning from and imitating Him by the help of the Holy Spirit. So back to our main idea: no matter how inconsistent I may be, God is always consistent. The problem seems simple enough. I don't do what I know I should do. The thing I shouldn't do, I do. We seem to be lacking this purity of heart that Kierkegaard talks about. So I'd like to rewind, rewind a little bit to Romans 7, 15 through 19. I'm going to go back to my shiny, bedazzled Bible. And I'm going to read. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. You've heard the expression maybe of being caught between two minds. We talk about this in sports a lot of times. The commentators will describe an athlete who's in a situation where they're presented with two options, and in that split second of hesitancy, they miss the opportunity to make the, the key pass or score the goal for their team. So I've, we've established this issue, and we're lacking inconsistency. We struggle with sin. We lack this purity of heart. We're caught between two minds, that of the old man and the new man. So what can we do about it? So I'm going to give a couple practical steps, practical things that I feel like God has been showing me over the course of my life. The first is this, do not give up. It may seem very obvious and simple, but the older I get, the longer the list of people I know who have given up gets whether they've given up on their faith, whether they've given up on their marriages, maybe they've given up on their kids, maybe they've given up on their parents. This seems simple, but it's a very difficult thing to do as we face hardships, as we face sin, as we face each other's sin. 
Proverbs 24.16 says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. So keep getting up every single time, no matter what. God is consistent, even if you're not consistent. Many of the small groups at Redeemer have been reading the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and there's going to be a quote that, that comes up. I thought this was very encouraging and applies to what we're talking about. He says, There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me, God's love to me, is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned with myself and quench his determination to bless me. God absolutely desires to bless us. I believe that, and I've seen that in my own experience. I've seen that in the experience of the people around me. He does see us, and he's able to sympathize with us, right? We have a faithful high priest who's able to sympathize with us. And that blessing is life abundant in Christ. That blessing isn't just his forgiveness, although that's amazing, but it's also this fullness of life, this health, this maturity, this wisdom, all these things that he has that he desires to give to us. And remember that it's a process, right, like we talked about with sanctification. So the next thing is examine your heart and its habits. You've heard of the whole idea of insanity is doing this whole, the same thing over and over, expecting a different result, right? We kind of do this with our spirituality, though. We don't really change our habits. We don't change certain things. We don't remove certain things from our lives. But then we're surprised when we keep seeing the same issues, the same problems, the same sin. Psalm 139, 23 and 24, verse 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We, if we aren't willing to change something, we can't be surprised when we don't see the fruit that we want to see. So it may mean removing certain things from your life, even if it's for a season. It may mean removing certain people. For me, there was a season where it, I had to remove certain relationships from my life. I've got this really good friend who I've known for a long time. He's in the Air Force, and we went to boarding school together. He's known me since, since my emo days. We got into a ton of trouble together, and our relationship became fractured and more challenging as I came to know God, and he didn't. And it was harder and harder to connect. It was harder and harder to understand each other. And I remember talking to him on the phone one time, and he was just expressing all this to me, and he knew that he needed to get right with God, and he knew that he needed to make changes in his life. And he was perplexed that he was seeing these changes in me, but not in himself. And I was encouraging him that for me, a lot of it came down to removing myself from certain people in my life who I knew were drawing me back to old habits or drawing me back to old decisions. I'm a bit of a people pleaser, so it was challenging to follow after God and yet remain in constant company with these people, right? Paul talks about bad company corrupts good morals. And it was like my, my friend had never considered the idea that he should just change some of his relationships. And it seems so obvious, but it's extremely difficult to do. And he hadn't considered the fact that maybe those were the things that were keeping him from finding God, from growing in his relationship with God. Jesus talks about this idea of, you know, 
removing your hand if it causes you to sin, gouging out your eye. It's pretty graphic. I don't think Jesus is talking about self-mutilation, but I think he's talking about this single-minded requirement to overcome our flesh. And I've been reading through the Old Testament as well, and it's been interesting to me how many of the kings of Israel, they would either not obey God at all, or if they did obey God, they would always leave a little bit of the other tribes, the idolatry. They would keep some of their people around, and then they would get influenced, and it would draw them away from God inevitably. So we need to be asking ourselves, to what degree are we obeying God? And examine your heart. What is the thing in your life that maybe is pulling you away from God, competing for, for his attention? The next thing is look for the means of escape that God provides. So maybe you've heard the passage in 1 Corinthians 10.13. I'll read it real quick. I grew up hearing this passage all the time, and it used to infuriate me. It says, 1 Corinthians, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinthians. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. That's encouraging. We're not alone. You're not alone in whatever you're dealing with. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So I would read this passage and then I would be so frustrated because if I was sinning, then obviously... He wasn't providing, he was tempting me beyond what I could bear, right? But it wasn't until recently where God was starting to show me, do you choose the means of escape that I provide for you in those moments? We always focus on the first part, or at least I did growing up, but we never really focus on this, this second part of choosing the means of escape. There's like the anecdote about the lady who's on her front porch and then a storm rolls in. And it starts to get pretty crazy. There's a hurricane nearby. Waters start to rise. This boat comes by and tells her to hop in. And she says, no, no, it's okay. God will save me. Thank you, though. And they insist. And she's like, no, no, I trust my God. He will save me. He will deliver me. So they leave. The waters continue to rise, so she has to go inside. She goes up to the, to the top floor. She ends up on her roof. The waters are still rising. This helicopter comes, and they let, let down that little ladder that they have. And they say, Hop in, we're getting out of here. And she says, no, no, it's okay. God will deliver me. God will provide. Needless to say, she doesn't make it. She goes to heaven. She finds God and she says, God, where were you? And he says, well, I sent a boat and I sent a helicopter. What did you want me to do? And we kind of have this idea sometimes where we're so focused on the sin that we're dealing with, whatever that might be, that we, we don't look for the means of escape that God is providing. If you're like this lady or myself, maybe you had an idea or expectation of what freedom or what deliverance was going to look like. And I don't know exactly what that way out may look like for you. You may have an idea, something that's coming to mind. Maybe it's picking up the phone or answering that phone call from a friend. Maybe it's getting out of bed, just getting out of bed and, and showing up to something. Maybe it's in the middle of a conversation that you know is kind of going towards gossip, maybe it's changing the subject. Maybe it's taking advantage of a lull in the conversation to redirect something or redirect that coworker who's constantly gossiping, constantly putting people down. Maybe it's blessing that person who cuts you off in traffic. In Atlanta, that is very, very difficult because everybody drives like they're in GTA. 
that's a whole other sermon. But transformation is possible. And not just that, but it's a key part of the gospel, right? It's not just the forgiveness, but it's also now we have the Holy Spirit that is empowering us. It's a gospel of death to life and darkness to light. So remember this when you're wanting to give up or when you're not seeing the results or fruit in your life that you want to see. So getting back to our passage, you'll hear people say in NA meetings and AA meetings that the first step on the path towards recovery is admitting that you are helpless and that there is a problem. Paul is essentially saying that in verse 24. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No matter how inconsistent we may be, God is always consistent. So this is the good news now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through him we have reconciliation with the Father. And I think Paul's giving us the blueprint to this consistency in Christ. For starters, in the Gospels, what what did Jesus call the Holy Spirit that he was going to send? The Helper, right? So it's not just this mythical mist that we pray to. It's this living person who who helps us. In chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. In the book of Galatians, Paul also describes a contrasting life between the flesh versus life in the Spirit. In Galatians 5:16 through 23, he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Sound familiar? Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And the last thing I want to I share is a practical step is to preach the gospel to yourself and to others. Preach the gospel to yourself and to others. So what does this look like? When you recognize sin in your life, what's your first reaction? What does your mind go to? Do you shut down? Do you immediately hide or feel shame? How quickly do we... Turn to Scripture. How quickly do we turn to one another? More often than not, the good news of Jesus is the last thing on my mind when I know that I've sinned. This shouldn't be the case, though. And there's a reason why we gather, right? There's a reason why Paul encourages his church to keep gathering, keep gathering with the saints. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints. There's a reason we have things like small groups. I don't know if Julian or Pat are here. But they're doing an excellent job of helping people find other believers that they can connect with on a regular basis. Because every single one of us needs this. Whether it's me, whether it's Pastor Leon, whether it's anybody here, we all need this. We need to be reminded of God's truth over and over and over. This is why we do things like reading plans and church retreats. These aren't things to just 
fill our schedule. These are things to remind us of God's truth and remind us of the gospel. And Paul does a great job of this in his letters. He always brings his churches back to the truth, to the good news. In our passage, chapter 8, verse 37 to 39, Paul says this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's good news. It should be good news. So no amount of inconsistency can separate us from the love of God. And his forgiveness doesn't change. It's always available to us. His power to work in and through us doesn't change either. And again, not only that, not only are we forgiven, but he's now sent the Holy Spirit, the helper, that allows us and helps us to follow and please God in our thoughts and actions. It may not be something that happens overnight. It may not be something that happens every single time. But the more we pursue this process of sanctification and living by the Spirit and not by the flesh, the more I think we'll start to see this fruit and start to see this victory over the things that, that we haven't been victorious over in the past. So let's preach the good news of Jesus to ourselves and to each other in love as often as possible. You have full permission. If you ever see me down in the dumps, if you, ever, just, you can preach the gospel to me. I might not always receive it immediately in that moment. You know, this, this doesn't mean we minimize each other's struggle or sin. This just means we fight it with truth, okay? It means we don't just, like, dwell in it. It means we actually tell each other, hey, yeah, that might be what you said. That might be what you did. That might be how you responded to your kid or to your wife or to your neighbor. But this is what God says, Okay? And that's it. No matter how inconsistent we may be, God is always consistent. And that's all I've got. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion. God, thank you for your word. I pray that something that I said today would, would land, would produce fruit in somebody here, that you would use... Scripture and communion and our time together to grow each of us, to convict each of us, and encourage us towards you. In Jesus' name.